Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer Gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Hey, we're back with another episode of 1951 Down Place, the Hammer Films podcast hosted by myself, Derek M. Cook, and my dear friend, Scott Morris. This time around, we're going to give you a taste, okay, more than just a taste, but we're going to give you a taste of some Christopher Lee vampire goodness when Scott and I dive into the 1970 film Taste the blood of Dracula. Feel the cold grip of his presence. This is one that I picked as per the new format, the new way of doing things around here at 1951 Down Place. At the end of the previous episode, I just flat out told Scott what we're talking about this time around on this episode of the Hammer Films podcast. Sense the clammy excitement of his evil. As an aside, this isn't really the official Hammer Films podcast. I just want to make sure you know that. Anyway, at the end of the last episode, I just told Scott we're talking about Taste of Blood of Dracula. And in this episode at the end of our conversation, Scott's going to tell us what we're talking about next time. And it's a good one. I'm looking forward to diving into it with him. But that's getting way too ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about Taste of Blood of Dracula. Taste the sharp fear that he alone can bring. Scott and I kind of break it down a little bit, talk about what was going on behind the scenes, talk about the film itself, and most importantly, give you our impressions of the film. This is kind of sort of a return to form for us because this is a film that Scott hadn't seen, which is kind of how we started 1951 Down Place way back in the day when we had that Casey Criswell guy hanging around with us. Now he's been replaced by his kidney stones as a co-host with us, but back then, Scott was the Hammer noob, and over the years, Scott became very familiar with Hammer films, and well, now we have a movie that he hadn't seen before, so we're going back to basics, minus Casey, plus his kidney stones. And that's all happening right after this word from our sponsor. Ready when you are, gentlemen. Hello, 1951 Downblaze fans. This is your co-host, Scott, with some exciting news from our number one sponsor, Drax Delicatessen. Your favorite place to eat at the docks is introducing a new specialty menu with three new items to celebrate the newest episode of your favorite podcast. The first. And Sophia's Swiss Cheese Franks. These franks are made from a decades-old Frankenstein process that infuses pure Swiss cheese into the finest hot dogs made with various parts and ingredients we found in the kitchens and the lab, including a generous helping of strong English mustard cooked on Kimmy Kingston's large forehead. The second. Mehmet Bay's Moom Bar. Sheep intestines stuffed with a rice mixture, deep-fried in oil, and wrapped in Whipple wraps. Enjoy this with a side order of Karnak couscous while reading your very own Scroll of Life. And last but not least, the third. We are reviving a old Karnstein family recipe with the Taste the Blood Sausage of Dracula, made with the finest English pork and dried blood from the Count himself to give it that extra bite. For those looking for a bit more excitement in your life, make sure you ask for the large courtly cut. We are oh so positive that you're going to love the new offerings at Drax Delicatessen. Why don't you stop by for a bite the next time you're down on the docks? 
Draxella Contessin, a proud sponsor of the 1951 Downplace Podcast since 2013. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit MonsterKidRadio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. Ah, back to down place. Two, three, and one. Who's going to start this, by the way? <laughs> you count funny. <laughs> I, you said two, three, and one. <laughs> did I really? Yes. Huh. You know, what it is, is watching this movie got me all mixed up with my numbers. I got kind of wigged out. I mean, Count Dracula took all the good ones. And and I just, you know. Well, I, I, I just figured you thought the, the guy that got shot died before he actually did. And that's why you got him out of order. That's got to be it. We're talking about Taste the Blood of Dracula. Welcome to 1951 Down Place. How's everybody doing? And how are you, Scott? I am doing well. And how are you this morning? I have not been shot by my friend. I have not dabbled in the dark arts. I have not, uh, let's see, found my sister in a lake. I'm doing pretty good. Sounds like you're having a boring morning then. Yeah, so that's true. <laughs> I might be having a boring morning and I didn't have any of those things happen to me, but I did watch it happen to a whole bunch of other people because I watched the movie this morning. How's your day going so far? <laughs> oh, I'm doing I'm doing really well. I have also not been shot by Wallace. And I too watched Taste the Blood of Dracula, but I watched it last night, the film from nineteen seventy. Feel the cold grip of his presence. Sense the clammy excitement. Of his evil, taste the sharp fear that he alone can bring. Dracula's blood. This way, gentlemen. We know the way. These men thought they had tasted all that life had to offer. Ready when you are, gentlemen. Would you be willing to sell your souls to the devil? If one thought that one's experience might be extended. It would be extended to infinity. There's something there. Dracula is back. To choose his human victims. Alice. Who are you? 
How do you know my name? Dracula is back to select his companions in darkness. Who must die that he may live. If you shock easily, stay away. She's neither dead nor alive. Lucy! 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 Baxter! Baxter, listen to me! The marks on her neck! She's a vampire! Prepare yourself. Every nerve, every muscle. Oh, no. Prepare yourself for the greatest shock of all. Now, this was a first time watch for you, right? That is correct. I had not seen this before yesterday. I watched this uh, this morning. I also watched it on Halloween last year. I, I've watched it repeatedly. Today was the first time I watched it on Blue, though. I, I had forgotten that I actually had it on Blue. So I watched that this morning just to kind of see how it holds up. And the transfer is okay. I mean, there's nothing really spectacular about it uh, other than, I mean, it's in HD, I guess, but it's not like they did a lot of restoration or upscaling or sizing or converting or whatever it is you do to make things HD. But I've got it on blue. I just have it on regular uh, DVD and the four, four film favorites, Dracula. Yeah, and the, the blue that I have is a collection as well. And it's got Taste the Blood. I think it's that Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Whatever the previous one was in the run of Dracula movies is in this collection as well. But the way this collection is put together... It's like a book. It's a booklet. It's not just here's four discs. You actually slide the case out of this wraparound cover thing, and each disc has its own page in the book. I just did air quotes because that's good podcasting. And the Dracula movies are actually out of order. And I thought that was odd, but other than that, nah, it's fine. No special features to speak of, but it's on Blu-ray. said mine was just the DVD, and the, the DVD set has uh, The Horrors of Dracula, Dracula has Risen from the Grave, Taste the Blood of Dracula, and Dracula AD. 1972. Oh, yeah. I cannot wait till we get to that in Satanic <laughs> Rites, man. I really cannot wait. Uh, but I don't want to get ahead of us. You know, we, we got Taste of Little Dracula to deal with here. What is this? The fourth Lee film? I believe so. Let's see. So Horror of Dracula, Brides, Prince of Darkness. No, this would be the fifth then. Because Brides was not with Lee. Right. So it depends on if you want to count that or not. Well, in the run, I would count it just because it's got the, the Van Helsing connection. Yes. I, I could be talked into that. Good. <laughs> yes, it's the fifth entry in the film, the fourth to feature Lee. This was released, like you said, in 1970. It was part of a double feature with the movie Crescendo, which I also have not seen, but think I've got it on DVD at least once here. Did we talk about that? We didn't talk about that here on the show, did we? Crescendo? I thought we did. We did. You're right. <laughs> You know, weird. I am so out of practice. I'm going to shut up. I'm going to stop dominating the conversation with a bunch of nonsense and let Scott talk. <laughs> and I'm going to have some more coffee because clearly I need it. Yeah, I was pretty sure we had done Crescendo. We did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was the psycho mini Hitchcock one. Right. You know? And I, w I remember really liking that film. Yeah. And now that I look at it, I realize I like it too. <laughs> <laughs> but you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Now, wait a minute. How was the release on a double bill with 
Crescendo, if Crescendo was released as a double feature with Dracula AD 1972. I don't know. Where is your reference saying that it was released with uh, Taste the Blood of Dra- Dracula? The end all be all of all knowledge. Wikipedia. Well, there's your first mistake. <laughs> uh, actually, okay, so the release with Dracula 80 1972 was the U.S. release. I wonder if the Crescendo uh, double feature was a British release. That could that be. That makes sense because uh, Dracula 8072 obviously didn't come out until at least 1972. A.D. Uh, around the world. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, what are we talking about? Taste the blood of Dracula. <laughs> From Hammer. <laughs> there we go. I'm feeling a little out of practice still uh, here on the show. So listeners, please forgive me. And Casey's kidney stone is being very quiet. I wonder if this was the first time the kidney stone saw the movie. Probably since, well, I don't know. I, I don't know what its viewing habits has been since it left Casey's body. So I don't want to talk on top of the kidney stones. Kidney stone, do you have anything to add? I liked it. Oh, we really do need a voice for that kidney stone. I think he might have more lines than Christopher Lee, though. You know, maybe, though, just like Christopher Lee, or at least what the director said about Christopher Lee in this movie, the lack of lines makes the few lines that he does have that much more important and makes the character that much more mysterious and all that. Oh, I think I definitely agree with that. I think it makes his lines more powerful. Oh, yeah. I'm glad to hear and pick up on some positive vibes here. It's a little worried about this one because I know... I know you. <laughs> We've been <laughs> friends for years. And I know maybe not what you like per se, because you're always surprising me in, in that regard. But I do know what you don't like. And I did worry that this might have had some kind of sort of slasher overtones that would have turned you off. But I'm getting some positive vibes. So let's see if that holds here. See if my prediction, my, my, my uh, ESP or empathy or whatever. I'm more coffee. <laughs> no, I I did not get that much of a slasher vibe from this film as much as the earlier Dracula films. Excellent. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. Scott liked it. I liked it. And I liked it, too. There you go. There's the, okay. a clean sweep. <laughs> All right. So the movie was released in 1970. It was, uh, the, like we talked about earlier, the fifth film in the Dracula run. At some point, Hammer committed to doing a Dracula movie a year. And this movie came out from that directive or, or a plan, I guess, or sales pitch to the distributors. Originally, it wasn't supposed to be Christopher Lee. Uh, he was not actually part of the story. Dracula, that we know, was going to be replaced by this younger, as he was referred to by Carreras, the new guy. <laughs> or the new boy, excuse me, Ralph Bates was going to take over the Dracula, the villain role in this. And the distributors were cool with having a Dracula movie, but they wanted Lee. And and rightly so. I mean, Lee is Dracula at this point. You know, I, I love my Lugosi, but at this point, Lee is synonymous with Dracula. And you can't imagine, I can't imagine a Dracula movie, at least from this era, without Christopher Lee in it. So they got to bring him in. Before we get get there, is one thing I found interesting that yes. this wasn't the first script that they got for the film either. Right. Uh, they actually got a script for a film called Dracula's Feast of Blood. Which I love that title, by the I way. Do I do, too. If, I don't know if that title is, like, copywritten, trademarked, or whatever, but I would love to see a story called that or read or watch a movie called that. 
Yes, and that was uh, put together by Freddie Francis's son, Kevin. Who doesn't get credit <laughs> no. in the final film, and that was kind of a sore point, wasn't it? I, yes, but I don't know how much of that they actually used because Hammer then went out and they were looking for a new writer and that's where they came up with almost what we saw in the film because the first pass of the film did not have Christopher Lee as as you mentioned you know the character Lord Courtney was going to be uh, the new Dracula which I'm going to say right now as much as I love Christopher Lee I would like to have seen that I like Ralph Bates I do too uh, I, I think he's fantastic. This was his first film for Hammer. He did a number afterwards. I believe he did a total of five, if I remember right. He's fantastic, and he's a great villain. Oh, my! Oh, he's wonderful. Uh, I would have loved to have seen, and I know, you, I know you don't know this actor yet, as we haven't gotten to uh, 80, 1972, but him and like Christopher Neem would be a wonderful double feature <laughs> or double villain you know, vampire brothers going and doing something kind of thing. Ralph Bates is fantastic. I wish he had more to do in this one. It's obvious that once the American distributors insisted on Lee being in the film, that Hammer was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place of what to do with Ralph Bates. And uh, so they kind of redid the script where he's still up to the point of this, I don't know what you would call it, but uh, where they they bring Dracula back, seance-type event or whatever, but then they just killed him off because they didn't know what else to do with him. <laughs> the ceremony. ceremony. get ready for the ceremony. Yes. Yes, and I love, I, I can't do it, but I love the way he talks, he says the word, ceremony. Yes. It's awesome. But everything, I just really like the way that this character and this actor just kind of commanded the screen. When he first shows up at that for lack of a better term, this whorehouse, basically, <laughs> and just takes over and just ignores what the host is saying and just acting like he owned the place. You know, I, I was immediately drawn to him and wanted to, to know more about his story. I thought he was great. Yeah, he's fantastic. There's this charisma mm -hmm. and, and, and raw power about him for a younger guy. I don't know how old he was in the movie, but he's definitely portrayed as, as younger than our leads. Yeah, oh, definitely. He could have easily slipped to this kind of spoiled, young, rich brat kind of thing, but he didn't fall on this annoying, spoiled, rich brat side of the line. He was rich. Obviously, he had power, but he commanded everything. And, and uh, why he was just amazing. And it makes me kind of reassess his roles in the other hammer films that we've talked about here on the show i mean he was frankenstein in the horror of frankenstein right uh he was in lust for a vampire and, and it makes me kind of reassess him as an actor or as a, his characters really from these other movies and i'm eager to get to dr jekyll and sister hyde because i know he plays jekyll in that i was so taken aback by him and after watching the film and i started doing a little bit of research because i did not know the story of how Christopher Lee approached this film, I, I kind of held back on learning a whole lot of the, the metadata about the film until I saw it. And after learning about that, my first thought was, A, you know, I'm glad Christopher Lee's in this film. I really like him. His presence is great. But part of me was like, I'd like to have seen how it was originally going to be put together. I would like to have seen Ralph Bates' Dracula. You know what I would love is for Hammer to release 
just a collection of their scripts that didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Not, not not scripts that were you know altered because the censor said so, but whatever existed for this feast of blood. I would love to read that script. You know, just just to see what could have been. I know people have done articles, and I've got a couple of publications here about the lost films of Hammer. And I just did air quotes again. I got to stop that. Um, <laughs> where they talk about the different projects that at one point or another were talked about being done and just never happened. Like their Vampirella movie, like their Dinosaurs versus Blimps movie or whatever that was going to be called. Dracula in India. There was a, a, move, a movie that was planned for that that never really came to be, but an audio presentation of it was done last year which was pretty cool or at least a version of it i would love to see a, just a collection of scripts and screenplays call it the the lost hammer i don't say films what would you call it i guess scripts yeah. or stories or stories yeah untold stories from the hammer vault or something i would love to see oh i like that title hammer please make that happen because i know they listen i'm sure they do (laughs) it would be amazing i would love to read that script because i like that character Uh, they changed his name for this film he's no longer courtney he's courtly in this i don't know why that happened i kind of like courtly better but yeah i I could be talked into either one sure yeah like i said another thing i liked about him is how sure of himself he was oh he's confident man he he knows his. he's yeah (laughs) when everybody refuses to drink and he's like all right fine you're fools i'll do it yeah in in a couple of the other character traits that they gave him i really liked i mean they make a point of saying that his father had cut him off so he had no money even though it looked like he had a whole lot of money Mm-hmm. And you know the the gentlemen that are just meeting him ask brothel owner how does he um, you know, able to afford everything and he says well the girls pay him that just blew me away he's got that <laughs> much control that the the women working in the brothel pay him I know I said earlier that he could have he was just a kind of rich kind of spoiled guy he doesn't have any money but he, that doesn't stop him from acting like he does right right he's um, you know for lack of a better term he's cocksure. Yes, yes. When he is being taken out to dinner by the three gentlemen, before any of them can recommend where they're going to go, he tells the the coach driver where they're going. And it's clearly the most expensive place in town. And he knows it. And he looks at the other three guys. It's like, there's no other place. And they immediately agree. Yep. No, I really liked his character in this film. He was he was definitely one of the highlights of the film for me. I know maybe we're kind of skipping around and kind of breaking whatever formula we may have these days on Down Place. But since you mentioned the brothel, I want to mention the brothel owner. <laughs> <laughs> what a creepy little dude, Russell Hunter. What a creepy little dude that looks like he's into all sorts of things when the, the doors are locked up for the night or morning or whatever. Ugh. <laughs> when I first saw him, better yet, when I first heard him, I looked at my wife and I said, you know, that's Tim Curry's great, great grandfather. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my, yeah. Oh I would my, not be no. surprised if Tim Curry saw this film at one time and you know, maybe patterned Dr. Frankenfurter a little off of this character. <laughs> if somebody could take Felix... And tell him, you know, one of your descendants will eventually be this man and show him a picture of Dr. Frankenfurter. I would get the impression that Felix would be like, oh, great. Cool. <laughs> yeah. He would have no problem with it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's wonderful. I got distracted by him. And he's in the trailer, too. I mean, he's he's pretty front and center uh, in, in the scenes that he's in. He's not in it very long. 
and, and somebody else who's not in it very long, which I was really surprised by, was Madeline Smith. Yes. I was shocked. That shocked me. Yeah, she's one of the women in the brothel who, who has some positive things to say about the movie. And oh, what the heck, I'll pull out the book and read the quote right now. This is from Hammer Glamour, which I only read for the articles. It has articles? <laughs> Let's see here. Madeline Smith. I watched Taste the Blood of Dracula the other night, and I was reminded of why I was so happy in that scene. Those chaps, Jeffrey Keane, Peter Salas, and John Carson, were all top-notch actors. It's a wonderful little scene. Although, I must admit, I wasn't sure about that snake. <laughs> At this point, she had been in... Well, actually, I guess this was before Vampire Lovers, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And she's also in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Right down the line, which is good as well. This was her first Hammer film, it looks like. Hmm. Interesting. So is it you just kind of come in to play a hooker in one scene and then <laughs> you, you get promoted to uh, a vampire lover and then you don't even have to bother talking anymore while you haven't gotten to Monster from Hell yet? No, I have not uh, not seen that. But she also then goes on to play Beautiful Girl in Live and Let Die to steal something from a little later in the show. Beautiful Girl. Is that her credited? Is that actually the character's name or is that just how she's credited? That's how she's credited. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> With 70s James Bond movies, you never know sometimes. <laughs> no, she's just credited as Beautiful Girl. Okay. Which she is a beautiful girl. <laughs> she is. I mean, there's a reason why um, she, I believe, isn't she the person on the cover of the Hammer Glamour book? I believe so. I, yeah, I don't have mine in front of me, so I don't know. I have mine with me all the time for the articles. But it's, it surprised me that she mentions the snake because if, if you've seen this film, you would now think that she was actually the, the woman dancing with the snake. But that's not her. No, not at all. I don't know what kind of interaction she had with that snake. <laughs> uh, the snake woman was played by Malika Martin. I don't know anything about her. I think this was her only role, at least according to IMDb. I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe it's just some performer they hired to do the scene. A uh, performer like the like sideshow. Sideshow. Yeah. yeah, they hired her from the sideshow. <laughs> what do we normally do before we get into the guts of the movie here, Scott? Do we do? We want to jump to connections or am I getting ahead of ourselves here? Uh, we usually talk a little bit about you know, sort of what we're doing, a little about some, some of the characters that we liked. Okay. And some of the actors. Well, if we're going to do that, can I start gushing? Uh, sure. Michael Ripper, man. <laughs> yeah. Not playing an innkeeper. No, playing a cop <laughs> named Cobb. Michael Ripper, my man. I love Michael Ripper so much. He is such a welcoming presence in any movie I see him in. And admittedly, I typically only see him in Hammer movies, but I love this guy so much. Uh, and to have him in here just makes the movie feel right even though a lot of the gothic trappings of hammer have been kind of put aside and pushed away so for some more victorian trappings mm -hmm. you've got the, the welcoming reassuring presence of michael ripper and while he doesn't turn up until what two-thirds of the way into the film quite a ways into the film it's just good to have him there yes i love his first scene when he goes into the house and goes into that study and sees the alcohol and there's nobody around and he starts to make a drink. And when somebody comes in the room and he immediately stops, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, you're not playing a barkeep in this scene. Oh, right, yes. right, right. <laughs> no, I, I thought he was great for the, the, for the, the small role that he had in the film. I mean, that's one of the things 
that I've come to know about him is he's in a lot of Hammer films, but never, hardly ever very long. Right. I think we've already talked about the movies that he's got the biggest roles in. Uh, we've done the Gorgon and we've talked about Night Creatures or Captain Clegg. And those movies, I think, are the two that give him the most to do when it comes to Hammer anyway. Yeah, at least as far as I know, yes. Yeah, and I think I'd have to double check, but I think that's, yeah. But he's been doing more, or he's done more Hammer films than Lee or Cushing because he's always in the bar. He's always in the end. Or in this case, he's a cop. <laughs> he's a cop. <laughs> which, which, you know, we're, what, 1960, 1970, what, 70, 1970, right? Yes, this 70. So he's a little older than what we saw him in, like, say, that one Quatermass movie or whatever. And I think he worked. I think it kind of fit. He's got this kind of weary look to him. Like he's seen some stuff, but nothing vampire like. I, I like it. I liked him too. I want to mention another uh, actor that's not in the film all that much. I mean, he starts off in the film as, as one of the main characters, but he drops off pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And that is a character by the name of Weller. Yeah. Played thank you for by Roy him. Kinnear. Oh, he's great. And when I first saw him, I'm like, where do I know him? It took me a while to realize that he is Mr. Salt from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> right? <laughs> Veronica Salt's dad. But I just, I I was just drawn to him. I and mean, he was so good as this seller of knickknacks. I mean, he's trying to sell that, what looked like a snow globe there at the very, very beginning of the film. <laughs> right. He was great. And I, I love that whole opening where he's, he's in the carriage. And when he mentions he's visited Karnstein. They mm-hmm. immediately throw him out of the carriage just because he's been there. <laughs> yeah. The one guy just is leering at him and leering, you know, through the snow, some weird shots through a snow globe and all that. I, I like that bit. I love when they go to his shop. Oh, I do too. Oh, I love that sequence because Courtly, I mean, he knows what it is and Weller kind of knows what it is. And on the one hand, if he's that repulsed by it, why has he got it in his shop anyway? What I liked about that scene is I got the impression from, from Weller Courtley has been there many times to drool over this, but he he knows that Courtley's never going to buy it. He doesn't have any money. But as soon as the other gentlemen are there and he sees that they look like they have money, his demeanor changes to being the salesman and everything. It's, it's just a subtle turn, but I really like it when he realizes he might actually make a sale. Yeah, it's, it's really good. He didn't need to be in the movie that long. I'm glad they didn't. Right. Keep him in the movie that long, although he could have been somebody that Dracula went after, I suppose. He was kind. Well, maybe not. Put myself in Dracula's wings here. He (laughs) sees that Kinnear actually (laughs) saved his blood so he could be reborn. So he would probably consider Weller's character as somebody that helped him. Something just happened here. How long have I known you, Scott? Oh, I don't know. Why? The bottom line is I've known you for years. Yes. And we've talked... Monster movies, zombie movies, hammer films, horror films over the years, repeatedly in person and on various podcasts, mostly on mine because, I mean, not a lot of room for it on Disney Indiana. No, no, there isn't. But this is the first time that I've ever envisioned you as a monster, as a vampire, (laughs) because of what you just said. I've never thought, you know, what would Scott be like? Like, hmm, now I'm imagining Scott as a vampire and... I look good. (laughs) I don't know. I, hmm. I got the height for it. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have the height, you have the charisma, but hmm. (laughs) now in my mind, you've got the things. Okay. (laughs) 
and now I want to see a story in which Scott is a vampire menacing Disneyland after dark. All right. So would I suck oil since I'm attacking the audio animatronics? I, I want the final showdown of the movie in which you know they're going after you and they discover that your vampire lair is in the It's a Small World ride. <laughs> and now I want the audio animatronic of uh, Abe Lincoln so he could actually be a vampire <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, you went there. Okay. All right. I know there have been jokey, jokeys, zombies and Disney stories and, and yes. manipulations. Have they ever done vampires? I don't know of any. Uh, I've read a few zombie ones and I've read stories where the audio animatronics come alive. But I can't think of any, you know, Dracula's or Frankenstein's Disney stories. That's not to say there isn't any. I'm just not familiar with any. Listeners, are if there are any that you can think of. I'd love to see these things. Yeah, so would I. And uh, if there's nothing out there yet, Scott, you and I need to write something because uh, <laughs> now I want to have like a big vampire showdown in the Hall of Presidents. I want to <laughs> – oh, man, this would be awesome. I want there to be a shop for Weller to work at on Main Street. I want <laughs> – Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. My brain is – I need more coffee, dude. I really do. <laughs> uh, other cast members that we like. I like the three uh, guys that oh, really kind yeah. of drive this thing, although there's one that I prefer over the others, and I'm betting you can probably guess who it is. Uh, would that be uh, Jeffrey Keen? Actually, no. Wow. Carson's, I Carson's my guy. John Carson. Ah. The guy from Plague of the Zombies. <laughs> John Carson, man. He's got a heck of a voice. Uh, he's wonderful. And I know he's in a movie that – you're not the biggest fan of. I know he's in Captain Kronos. Mm-hmm. Which I only mention because whenever I say it, I hear the stinger in my head. But he's in Captain Kronos, but he's also in Plague of the Vampire. Plague of the Vampires, Plague of the Zombies. He's my guy. I like him a lot. And I like that he's the one that's like, oh, look, she's one of the undead. And it makes perfect sense to me that this is a guy who knows all this stuff because these guys have been kind of dabbling in dark stuff anyway. So he's got a lot of book knowledge in him. And I just I love it. I love him. I thought he was the most level headed of the yeah. three. Because Jeffrey Keene's character, he was a drunkard, basically. He kind of fell to pieces when things got real. And then uh, Samuel Paxton, who is played by uh, Peter Salas, was very timid. I got the impression that he was just there, you know, kind of hang, uh, hanger on, maybe had more of the money. So they kind of used him or something. But I never thought he would kind of fit in with the rest of them. That's a really good way to put it. I always I felt that way, too, that he didn't really fit. Like, what are these other two guys doing spending time with this guy? But I think maybe you're right. Maybe he had more funds or more power in town or something. Something. Huh. Okay. Cool. I, you know, I like him, too. Oh, yeah. I did not not like him. It's just he and Jeffrey Keene's character seems to have other issues that were bringing them down where Jonathan uh, Seckler or you know John Carson's character, he was the one that if, if things fell apart, he's the one that could make things work. He's the one that could maybe do a cover up of something so no one found out anything. He's the one to turn to for that type of work of the three. Yeah, I can see that. And, and here's the thing that I like about some of the Hammer movies that we watch or any really classic monster movie 
if there's a character that I would like to learn more about what he does when the movie's not happening, I'm drawn to that. And I'm drawn to John Carson's character. Like, I, I imagine he's probably got some sort of job in town where he oversees some sort of industry of some sort. And maybe that's kind of a bleed over from Plague of the Zombies where he was running the mill or the mine, excuse me. But still, there's just something about him that I think he's most the most level-headed, has the most knowledge and maybe not money, but other resources. It's funny you say that because in my mind as I'm watching the film, they never say what these three people do for a living. <laughs> no. And I got the impression that uh, Jonathan Seckler was a captain of industry. He had mm-hmm. he was the head of some mining or something. Jeffrey Keene or William Hargood, banker, was the first thing oh, that came to my mind. Yeah. He, he was running the town bank. Yeah. And... Samuel Paxson was the hardest one for me to nail down of what he did, but I got him in my mind as somebody in the press for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But yes, you were talking about uh, Jonathan Seckler. I I definitely saw him as a captain of industry. Yeah, something. And he lasts the longest of the three, not to get too far ahead of us. True, he did. (laughs) He did. Um, He has probably the most boring death scene of the three for me. I mean, he delivers it really well. I mean, the look on his face when he finally goes out is like this ultimate betrayal, but somehow still knowing that he's kind of responsible for what happened. Uh, just the way he sells it, he's just a great actor. Really enjoyed him. And, and I still like Jeffrey Keene and the other end, uh, Peter Salas, too. You really like Keene for some reasons that we can talk about, <laughs> well, whenever you're ready. Uh, he's important here. Yes. There's one other person in the cast that I think, at least one other person, we, we got to talk about. We got to talk about Lee, the, the Lee in the room. Mm-hmm. Oh, Christopher Lee. <laughs> I like Lee a lot. He's one of my favorite actors when it comes to these types of movies, and even not these types of movies. He's got charisma. He's got power. He's got the voice, grace, skill. He can intimidate. He can make you just do all sorts of things just by looking at you. But he really didn't like doing these movies. (laughs) And he made sure everybody knew it, especially at the time. I I got the impression that towards the end of his life or maybe the end of his career with Hammer, maybe he started to soften a little bit and kind of acknowledge that without Hammer, he wouldn't be where he ended up. But he just, during the the time, he was really getting turned off by the whole thing. I've got a quote from him. Now, this comes from an old issue of Little Shop of Horrors magazine. Issue number four in the article, Hammer, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. I think that's the article. Anyway, this is a quote from the 1970 edition of the Christopher Lee International Club Bulletin from January, February. I'm speaking to you from my – I wish I could do the voice. Man, that'd be awesome if I could do the voice. I'm speaking to you from from my dressing room at ABPC Studios, L Street, where I'm at the present moment wading through this latest masterpiece from Hammer Films. I know that you must realize by now how I feel towards this particular product with these particular people. So there's no need for me to go into it in endless detail and repetition. Suffice it to say to you that it is coming out just as I expected it would. This film has a somewhat odd script, to say the least. But we got the best cast that I think they've ever had in a Hammer production. And that's the other thing. He says that he doesn't like doing these movies. And he offers a lot of criticism. But every once in a while, he'll slip in how much he enjoys working with these people. Well, he also, I, I've got a quote that's similar. Uh, he told his fan club journal, On November 3rd, I start what I hope will positively be my last film for Hammer. As usual, words fail me, as indeed they do also with the film. 
But then he went on later to tell an interviewer by the name of Bill Kelly, I like certain elements of the storyline, and apart from the absence of Peter Cushing, we had the best cast of any Dracula film. A lot of backhanded compliments, I guess. I got the impression that at the beginning of the film, he didn't want to be there, but after he went through the process of making the film, oh, it was all right. I, I liked the people I worked with. <laughs> but I never want to do it again. Exactly. Until <laughs> somebody drops another script in front of me and they guilt me into doing it again. But yeah. I like him in this film, even though he doesn't have very many lines. It's his presence in this film. To me, in my head canon, I guess, when I think of a Dracula, I don't think of a chatty character anyway. I see somebody that mind control, going after the, the lovely ladies, and just intimidating people, which I think he excels at in this film. Especially in this film. I think we've already had one movie where he has very little to say, mm -hmm. if anything at all. And even though he's not speaking that much, every word he speaks is just loaded with three or four pages of dialogue's worth of emotion and, and stuff and depth. And I mean, that's Christopher Lee. This is the Dracula of the 60s and 70s. The, I'll even say the 50s, 60s and 70s. I love Lugosi. I'm, I'm on Team Bela 100%. His Dracula from 1931 is very different than Lee's Dracula. The approach is so different. And I like what Lugosi does. But Lugosi couldn't do it the way Lee did it and vice versa. I think this is Lee kind of at his best. I'm going to go out on a limb and say outside of Dracula 58, which is important because it's the first time, this is probably one of my favorite portrayals of Dracula by Lee. Oh, I can easily agree with that. The, the first film, like you said, it's it's important because it is the first one and he is, he is so good in that film. But here... He acts more like I always think a vampire should act and just nails it. Mm -hmm. or, or stakes it. Or stakes it, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I don't think a vampire would want to stake it. But. That, that's true. That's true. I mean, when you're watching this film, as he's on screen, you are looking at him. You aren't looking at anybody else. You want to see what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily what he's going to say, because he's not going to say a whole lot, but he just commands presence and attention. Every time he's on the screen, there's something about this movie too that lends itself to that. Just the story I mentioned earlier, this movie doesn't feel very gothic like some of the previous films did. This is a more full on Victorian style type of story, which the differences aren't necessarily glaring. I mean, there's kind of some subtle differences here and there. It doesn't look like the previous movies because it's not shot at Bray. It's got a first time feature film director at the helm, Peter Sazdi, who would go on to direct quite a few other movies, some for Hammer and some for not. But, you know, he'd done a lot of TV, but this is his first feature film. So he's got a different take on it. I wish I could find it. Lee was very excited about working with this new guy. Uh, he, he mentioned in an interview somewhere that he was looking forward to working with this young Hungarian director. I'm glad he did work with him because I really liked him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like what he did. Uh, Peter Sassi would go on to direct uh, a number of other Hammer projects and would also work again with Lee, uh, not just under the hammer umbrella, he did a movie that I absolutely adore and most people really don't like called Nothing But the Night in 1973. Directed Lee and Peter Cushing in this movie. I love this film so much. <laughs> uh, it was done for Charlemagne Pictures, which was uh, Lee's production company. It didn't do very well and was the only film done by Charlemagne because of that. 
which is too bad because Nothing But The Night is fantastic and an underrated film and I highly recommend it, people. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that the editor drops in a trailer for it because it's so cool. Content. Faces of innocence, happy and carefree. But beneath the sound of children singing, there is a hum of evil. Filling their days with the terror of the night. A coach load of children. I can't believe that. The children were incidental. What? They were accompanied by three illustrious and very rich trustees of the Van Traylon Trust. The nature of the killing points to one thing, ritual murder. I want you to tell me about the fire. No, don't talk about it, please. Try to remember what happened. It was so cool at first, but the fire came faster and faster. my life for it. But if you're lying to me, if this is some kind of trick... The Masters of Suspense, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, unravel a web of mystery that reaches out from the confines of a hospital to a bleak island off the coast of Scotland. Is Mary Valley well protected? Colonel Bingham has made adequate security arrangements. But he can't protect her from the nightmares in her mind. Inspector? Organize local volunteers for a search. I want every inch of this island searched before nightfall. Is it a mother's love or a thirst for revenge that drives her to this island? To be hunted like an animal. While the children play, disaster chills the day. And the night explodes with danger. Don't cut the rope! I order you, just that night! I wanted to touch on something you just mentioned about this film, talking about its Victorian. Yeah. Uh, feel to it. Another strong feel that I get from this film, which is going to explode in the 70s, is all of the occult. Yes. And I think, you know, this has got to be one of the early films that rely uh, quite a bit on the occult. And I really like it in this film. There is something about the 60s, mid to late 60s, and then through the 70s. The the movies that deal with supernatural stuff, it's not just, oh, he's a werewolf. It's, he's a werewolf because of Satan. You know, it's, there's this, this occult, this real heavy, kind of oppressive, everybody's kind of dabbling in witchcraft kind of thing, which is one of the reasons why I like Nothing But The Night. Uh, <laughs> there's... 
you start to get that here. You are going to see this again in at least one other, if not two other Dracula films down the line here, Scott. So I'm glad you like it because you're going to get more of it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very well done there. And the other thing is, too, is that because this movie uh, is released in the late 60s, uh, early 70s, well, 1970 again, we're starting to see a shift in just storytelling and filmmaking to begin with. Uh, we're starting to see more nudity. We're starting to see more sexuality, not sensuality, but but sexuality. And we're starting to see a breakdown of some of the norms and the institutions that we're used to seeing. From the book, A New Heritage of Horror, the English Gothic Cinema by David Pyrie, he says that even by Hammer's standards, this is an extraordinarily overt Freudian allegory. But fortunately, says he's able to incorporate much of it into the imagery of the film. And what he's referring to here is that there's a lot of breakdown of the family unit in this movie. Big time. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, the family is still one of these sacred safe things, right? Well, not when Dracula and the black magic gets involved and the, the head of the household is spending whatever resources that come from whatever job exploring, you know, the, the, out, the outer whatever, whether it's brothels, whether it's ceremonies at a church somewhere. It's just this really interesting kind of breakdown here and seeing Dracula become the catalyst to tell that kind of a story is fascinating to me, too. I really love that part. And what I like as well in this is when they had the ceremony, they didn't really explain it. They just did things. Lord Courtney just kind of, okay, I'm doing this, you know, if you see him doing this, they don't spend an overt amount of time saying, oh, we've got to do this to do this to do this. It was left more into your imagination of why he's doing this or this, which I think is in this case, much better because, you know, he's setting up all this stuff for the for the ceremony. And I'm like, OK, what is why are these candles here? Why is there this black tapestry hanging? You know, they don't really go into it. And then later at the climax, those things have to be removed. They don't explain why, but they're removed. So it's just some of those things that was making it interesting to me to watch and try to, in my mind, thinking, okay, they're doing this because of this, even though they don't overtly tell me that. And I like that, too, a lot. We're not beating you over the head with it. It's just kind of there. Uh, something else that's kind of there, there's a shot in here. I don't know if you, you caught it, and I am just now realizing what I'm looking at when I look at this picture in the Hammer Films and Exhaustive Filmography book by Tom Johnson and Deborah Delvecchio. There's a shot in here where Dracula can be seen standing in front of a drawing of the Goat of Mendez. The Goat of Mendez we see in The Devil Rides Out from 1968, which is another one of these occult-type pictures. And another film I really liked. Yeah, which is also really, really good to, to kind of go back to your occult thing. It's just so much about this movie to, that I enjoy. I love the feel of it. It doesn't have the same look, like I said, and I think that makes it stand out. Now, it didn't get a lot of good reviews from some corners of the world and other corners of the world. Loved it. It did really well the year it was released. It made a lot of money. Uh, one resource says it was like within the top five moneymakers of the year. But some people didn't like it. Some people do. I, I'm glad that it seems like you you dig it. I dig it. So, so the people who liked it are right, I guess is what That's I'm right. Uh, overall, story-wise, do we want to talk briefly about that or, or you, I feel like I just cut you off. Well, I, I wanted to talk to m about one more actor or actually actress in this film. Yeah, we probably ought to talk about the women. Yes. <laughs> and that's Linda Hayden who played uh, Alice. I loved her turn. The yes. first part of this movie, she's a little prim. You know, she does talk to blanking on her boyfriend's name. It was Paul, you know, saying nice things about Paul, but and, and talking to him, but she's not being forward or anything but once she's under 
Dracula's control, she's a lot more assertive. She had this dress on, this yellow dress that had big, huge straps on it. After she gets turned, those straps go down the shoulder. And she's dressing a lot more provocatively and a lot more uh, sure of herself. And I thought that the actress, Linda Hayden, did an amazing job of that turn to the point where Tracy even mentioned it. She's like, man, I like the way she's playing this character now. She's really good. Yes, and I'm sorry when I said we probably ought to talk about the women. I wasn't trying to downplay that. I, I'm glad you mentioned it because I was ready to move on. Linda Hayden is fantastic. This is the only Hammer movie she did, although she did an episode of Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense at one point as well. Uh, she is probably also known uh, as one of the le- uh, characters in Blood on Satan's Claw, which is also another really interesting European horror movie, not by Hammer, though. From Hammer Climber. It was written by Marcus Hearn, by the way. I don't think I mentioned that earlier. I mean, he just kind of backs up what we just said a second ago. Taste of Blood of Dracula is a product of a morally confused era. This time, however, Hammer cast Linda in the role of the heroic innocent. Her character escapes the drunken lechery of her violent father, only to find sanctuary in the embrace of Dracula. Okay, how bad do things have to be at home? (laughs) We both kind of giggle at that, but I kind of got the impression that her dad probably did some things to her that weren't appropriate. The scene where she literally runs into the arms of Dracula, her father is threatening to whip her. Which is awful. Oh, yeah. There, there are a couple times when he takes a good look at her chest. And that, oh, yeah. that is just like, and it's during a scene where she's saying, don't touch me. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. dude. Okay. I know you're exploring these crazy, weird things on the outer fringes, but that's not right, man. Yeah. That was uncomfortable, but it was powerful. Yeah. And then, you know, when she kills her dad, that's, that's pretty cool. But like I said, <laughs> I think my, my, <laughs> it's cool when he gets killed. I think my favorite death, though, was uh, Paxson's death when he gets staked himself. Mm-hmm. Does Dracula actually kill anybody in this film? I don't think so. He's maybe Lucy, but he's already turned Lucy. Right. But he turns the children against the three people that he once killed for killing his assistant or protege or whatever or child i mean yeah this is you know the fa- battle of the fathers to, to go back to the staking scene with paxton the shot that we got in the film was the second attempt at that the first time around they had an electric pump hooked up to the blood and uh, it just shot everywhere and like got in the actor's mouth and everything like that and they're like no there's no way this is going to pass the sensors and really it looks silly so they went back and did it again with a hand pump I was going to say, they, they must have still had a pump of some sort, because you could still see the, the blood throb a little bit. Which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Oh, gosh, it looks so good. Overall, the story, I think you might have be able to suss it out from what we've already said. To finish up with the actors, should I talk about my connections first? Yeah, wherever you want to drop that in. Yeah, let's do that as kind of the wrap-up of talking about the, the people in the film. Okay. First off, I want to do my Disney connections. Okay. And I'm going to start with Jeffrey Keen, who we've mentioned a couple times, playing William Hargood in the film. He's also in the Disney live action film, Dr. Sin, alias the Scarecrow. Nice. Which we we did a crossover episode with Tracy on that. That's right. A film that uh, Tracy and I, with the help of uh, Derek and Casey, covered in episode number 154 of the Disney Indiana podcast. Hey, I was there too. <laughs> we know Casey's kidney stone. I'm, I'm sure you were starting to. Yeah, we know. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Anthony Higgins, who played uh, Paul Paxton in the film. He's also in 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Do you know who he was? Anthony Higgins. Uh, he was, oh uh, gosh, I know he's in it. He's one of the guys that gets killed at the end, isn't he? 
He's Hopped Gobbler, who was uh, Colonel Herman Dietrich's personal assistant and Nazi major who helped oversee the dig site where they found the Ark of the Covenant. So I know Indiana Jones is technically Disney at this point. I just want to interject here and interrupt. With everything going on with Disney and Fox, let's not use Fox here, okay? No, Can we just I'm... say, okay, <laughs> this guy was an alien and that was a Fox movie? No. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go on. <laughs> Ilsa Blair who was Lucy Paxton in the film. She's in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, she plays Mrs. Donovan, the wife of American industrialist uh, Walter Donovan. And then this one I, I, I really like, uh, Martin Davis, who is Jeremy uh, Seckler in the film. He was in 2012's Wreck-It Ralph as a voice. Uh, Martin Jarvis? Yes, I'm sorry, okay. Martin Jarvis, okay. yes. Okay, really? Yeah, he, he voices uh, Satine, who is also known as Satan, a villain of one of the games in Litwax Arcade, and he's a member of the support group uh, Bad Annan that Ralph also attends. You know, it looks like he's done a few voices here and there. He's also the voice of Finn McMissile in both the Disney Infinity and Cars 2 video games. Michael Caine was the voice of Finn McMissile in the Cars movies, but in the video games, it's Martin Jarvis. Hmm. Also did a voice in Star Wars, the Old Republic video game. Yep. Interesting. And cool that he's still working. He's still working. Roy Kinnear, we talked about, who was Weller, the uh, the person the heroes purchased the Dracula's blood from, has a couple of Disney-related credits. In 1982, Roy played Maxwell Mercury, a talent agent who is visited by Warwick Davis, looking for work in a film <laughs> called Return of the Ewok. Have you seen that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Have you? Yeah. <laughs> He's also, he had a part in a film called The Omega Connection that was featured on the Walt Disney Wonderful World of Color in 1979. Mm -hmm. And he played Quincy, one of two British jewel thieves in the film Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo in 1977. Of the Love Bug movies, Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo is the one I've seen the most. <laughs> I don't know why, but when, uh, let's see, I think in fifth and sixth grade, they must have had a copy of it or something. They played this multiple times at different assemblies or after school or if we had got stuck inside because it was raining during a recess. This got played in the in the gym. I don't know why. Yeah, this one I'm, I'm very familiar with. <laughs> he was one of the two jewel thieves in that film. Mm -hmm. uh, moving on to James Bond. Uh, we already mentioned Madeline Smith as the uh, beautiful girl in Live and Let Die. And then we've mentioned it several times on the show about Christopher Lee's involvement with the man with the golden gun and being Ian Fleming's cousin. But the big one I want to mention here is Jeffrey Keene. Now, Jeffrey Keene has been in six James Bond films, each time playing Sir Frederick Gray, the Minister of Defense for the British government. He's in The Spy Who Loved Me from 77, Moonraker from 79, For Your Eyes Only in 81, Octopussy in 83, A View to a Kill in 85, and finally The Living Daylights in 1987. Very cool. I've always loved him in the James Bond films, and when I saw him here, I was I was excited because I really like that actor, and I, I think he's really good in this film. He's good as a drunk. He's good as a lech. I just, <laughs> he's good. He is very good in this, and uh, I'm not the Bond aficionado that Scott is, but uh, I hearing him talk about it. we actually talked briefly about this before we started recording i remember him from the james bond movies that i've seen and yeah he's good so those those are my disney and bond connections uh, unfortunately and i'm 
take full responsibility for this. I had not reached out to Don Falco for Doctor Who connections. So it's it's all on me that we don't have any Doctor Who connections this time. Hey everyone, this is Scott and I wanted to break into the recording right here because since the time that this episode was recorded and the time that it was edited, Don Falcos actually reached out to me to find out what we were covering on this episode so he could put together the Doctor Who connections. And he was gracious enough to do that and I'm going to drop that in right after this and we'll be back after that to uh, finish up our coverage of Taste the Blood of Dracula. Thanks, Don, for reaching out to me, and again, I apologize for not reaching out to you first. Hello, all. This is Don Falcos, and now it's time for Doctor Who Connections. Taste the Blood of Dracula yielded seven connections right off the bat, so then I stopped looking, so there might be even more. First off, there is Ilsa Blair, who played Lucy, Russell Hunter, who played Felix, and the vicar, Reginald Barrett, each of whom appeared in a single classic series Doctor Who story. Next up is Keith Marsh, who played Father. He was Conway in the feature film Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD, which stars none other than Peter Cushing. Martin Jarvis, who played Jeremy, appeared in three Doctor Who stories— as Helio in a first Doctor story, The Web Planet, as Butler in a third Doctor story, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and as the Governor of Veros in a sixth Doctor story, Vengeance on Veros. He has also voiced several Doctor Who audios. John Carson, who played Jonathan, played Ambril in a fifth Doctor story, Snake Dance. John Carson also appeared in the Hammer films The Plague of the Zombies and Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. Peter Salas, who was Samuel Paxton, is perhaps best known for voicing Wallace in the animated series of Wallace and Gromit films. Unfortunately, he passed away in June of 2017. Peter Salas played Elric Penley in the second Doctor story, The Ice Warriors. This is Don Falcos, and this has been Doctor Who Connections for Taste the Blood of Dracula. So okay. I, will, I will do better next time. I apologize to, to Don and everybody who is looking for Doctor Who Connections. Well, very good on the connections there. Uh, a lot of really interesting connections. I'm fascinated by the Monte Carlo Herbie movie. <laughs> uh, I haven't seen it in years, probably since I was a kid, but now I kind of want to go watch it. It's not Disney or James Bond, but I do want to kind of mention Peter Salas in this film. He's playing uh, Samuel Paxton. But if you're a fan of Wallace and Gromit, a very famous British stop motion animation comic, he's the voice of Wallace in all of the Wallace and Gromit films. Uh, and he uh, just passed away last year. Yeah, June of uh, 2017. Mm-hmm. Okay, I know I keep trying to get to it. Is there <laughs> anything else before I start, before we just talk briefly about the story? I think people can suss it out, like I said, but 
Um, overall, it's a pretty basic story. At least the, the the framework is. Once you get past the framework and you start digging into it, you see all the stuff we've started talking about. But basically, you've got three guys who are interested in exploring the fringes, the more exciting things in life, and whether that means going to a brothel or meeting up with some guy who's going to take them to the edge and let them sell their souls to the devil and, and explore pleasure infinitely beyond. That's what they're into. They're yes. bored. I'm assuming they're bored with whatever life they have. Now, they put on a good show. The opening credits, after we see how the remnants of Dracula end up in the hands of the shop owner, the opening credits actually play over them leaving church, I believe, isn't it? It's church? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, which is actually really cool. I don't know if we've seen this in a lot of, especially the quote-unquote monster movies from Hammer, where some things are actually happening that are relevant to the story during the credit sequence. And I liked that. I like that a lot. And I wonder if that's part of the TV director in Peter Sasse coming to the forefront here. That's probably probably a good call. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Anyway, they meet up after hours. They go to a brothel. They're interrupted by Courtly. We've already talked a little bit about him and that whole sequence. He just kind of walks in like he owns the place. And uh, he grabs the attention of the three gentlemen and meet up for dinner and end up buying some artifacts from Dracula, bring him back. And well, like we said, they uh, leave Courtly. They basically kill him. He's the only one that ends up drinking some of the powdered blood of Dracula. The other three are given goblets, but chicken out. I want to backtrack and talk about the powder real quick. I love the bit in the shop when he pulls it out and says, and here's the, the powdered blood of Dracula, the remains of Dracula's blood. Well, it's just powder. Um, yep, you're right. It's just powder here. Let me go put it away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that moment. So he's the only one who drinks. And of course, he starts choking. And for the first time in the movie, he's out of control asking for help. Well, these three guys aren't going to help him. They beat the heck out of him with their canes and leave him to die. That shocked me when he was asking for help because he was yeah. so sure of himself and everything. I, that really laid into my mind. If he's asking for help, he's really in dire straits. Yeah. There, there is this moment where, and, and I don't know if this is really true to the character, but there's this moment where I feel like the bravado, the cocksuredness of him, that's all a front. There's really something damaged or weak within him, and now we're seeing the true courtly. Maybe. I don't know. But he does ask for help, and the three gentlemen just beat him up and leave. His body becomes Dracula's body. Dracula takes him over through the blood or whatever the process is. Doesn't matter. Dracula's now back, and he's mad at these three guys for letting his servant die the way that he did. What did you think of this transformation scene? I liked it. I liked it. I thought it was interesting. I did too. Yeah, no, I liked it a lot. I thought I thought the effects overall are, are pretty solid. I mean, even the lap dissolve at the end when Dracula gets killed. How he gets killed, not necessarily a big fan of. I think that's probably the weakest point for me. But as his body is lap dissolving away, I thought it was kind of neat. I thought this scene of Courtly being basically taken over by sand or earth or something. Mm -hmm. I, I liked the special effects there much better than the, the dissolve at the end. I, I liked the lap dissolve and I think I liked it more because I thought I saw like a glitch on my disc when I was watching it. So I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to back this up to make sure. Cause if there's a scratch on my disc or something, I'm going to be mad. And when I was playing it back backwards, just kind of scanning it back, 
<laughs> it's kind of a neat kind of effect because the lap dissolve actually reverse makes it look like he's growing out of the altar that he's on. And it's just not just like appearing, but actually rising out of the ad. And there's kind of a neat like, OK, I'm going to play this back again and watch it real carefully and have a new appreciation for it. Anyway, uh, so Dracula declares that or not necessarily declares, but he's going to go take out the three guys. He counts them down. One, two, three. He convinces the other people in the men's families to do the killing, whether it's a daughter or a son. I already mentioned how awesome I thought it was. Paxton himself gets staked. I like the little confrontation, actually, between Saxton and uh, Secker. Oh, I did, too. When they find Paxton's daughter and John Carson, we got we to stake her. This is what we do. You're the father. You make the decision. When he hesitates, okay, fine, I'll do it. You just go away. I'll call you when it's done. <laughs> There's this moment where Paxton, just as, as Secker's about to stake him, Paxton turns up with a gun. He's like, get away from my daughter and shoots the guy. Multiple times. Yeah. A neat little twist. Uh, ultimately, it comes down to uh, Paul Paxton and Alice Hargood. I mean, they are in love. I mean, they've been kept apart by Hargood's father through this movie. He doesn't like Paul for whatever reason. Did you ever get the, did you ever find out or, or determine why that was, why he didn't approve of Paul? The only thing that I could come up with, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how much of a lech he was, mm-hmm. he wanted Alice to himself. I couldn't decide if that was it or if he knew what kind of person his father really was and he didn't want his daughter to be involved with that. That's a good point because he does mention early in the film and they ask him if he knows Paxton and he says, no, I've never heard of the name. Either way, they're the two that have to stand up to Dracula at the end. And we talked about the lap dissolve. Basically, it's a church and it's another one of these situations where, in my mind, the traditional Dracula vampire lore is that churches are off limits. But in so many of these movies from Hammer, this one, Vampire Circus, it turns up again later. He's walking around a church, no big deal. The biggest problem I have with this I love when they actually face off, when Paul and Dracula are facing off. But then for some reason that I I don't understand, Dracula goes up into the balcony and at one part he's he's tearing apart the organ and throwing the pipes at him, which I thought was hilarious. (laughs) But then he goes over in front of the stained glass window and when he breaks the stained glass window and he looks back, the church is restored. I didn't understand what was going on there. This is commented on in a few different resources, and, and I wish I remembered which one said this. Cause like I said, I've got the stack of books here, but somebody in one of these books says that for some reason or other, the church becomes alive and actively attacks Dracula at the end of the film. <laughs> and I know this is basically what happens. Yeah, it's, it is. It's odd. The church is like, I, I've had enough. Well, I guess if somebody was tearing apart my organ, I'd be mad at him too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's the movie. <laughs> That's the story. Like it's a real bare bones kind of story, but once you get past that framework, you start to see some of the stuff happening here. The, the breakdown of the family unit, the way Dracula convinces members of people's families, children, to kill their parents. Fascinating stuff here. And I think the reason why that is so fascinating is the cast in this film is very strong. Yes, I mean, th- there's only two: Lucy and uh, her boyfriend Jeremy. Why they have important parts in the film, I think they're the weakest link of everybody in the film. Yeah, they felt the most cookie cutter of the of the bunch. Yes. You know, we just we need a young couple in love. Drag this person over here, copy and paste this girl over there. Okay, we're good. But everybody else in this film was very strong. 
Yeah. I mean, I have my favorite of the three gentlemen. And of course, you have yours. And Christopher Lee is solid. Michael Ripper's great. Roy Kinnear is fantastic. Ralph Bates. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. Is, it any, is it any wonder that he would go on and do several other movies for our Hammer based on what he does here? I think that is why we've got sort of a by-the-numbers film in a lot of places. It's because of the cast makes this film great. Yeah. It's got enough of the gothic hammer in it to carry it as a hammer film, and the cast sells it. Uh, You know, James Bernard's got some great music in this. It's it's some of the best Dracula music for my money. Uh, Obviously, the first Dracula film's solid, but when it comes to his Dracula film score work, I love what he did here. The art direction is not Bernard Robinson. You know, they're not shooting at Bray, doing some different things and shooting in some different locations. And there's some outdoor scenes that I found really creepy. The cemetery sequences are great. When John Carson is wandering away from the church after having been shot. That is shot really well. It's really shot well. I have from the book Camera Films on Location by Wayne Kinsey and Gordon Thompson, uh, John Carson recalled. The most eerie thing that happened was when we filmed in Highgate Cemetery, located in North London. It's divided by road into two halves or sections. One section is very well kept. Karl Marx lies there. It's still in use as a cemetery. The other cemetery is now totally neglected and overgrown. It's on a steep hill, and many of the graves are cut into the side of the hill. These tombs have been plundered and broken into, and they've been rooted into the sycamore saplings. We filmed there on a wet and misty day and we needed no artificial help to create the atmosphere. We didn't need smoke machines or anything like that. It was very spooky indeed. We all felt it, and we were very glad to get out of the place. And that was the uh, the Egyptian quarter of that cemetery that was used. I, I didn't notice any Egyptian trappings per se, but oh, that was pretty interesting. No, I didn't notice anything Egyptian either. Not that it wouldn't have been out of place. I mean, we're talking about the occult stuff happening here. That is very true. I have another story about cemetery shooting here, and I'm pulling this from Monsters of the Movies magazine. This was published by Carlton Comics, which was actually Marvel Comics. This is from 1974. Did I say issue number three already? It's got a pretty cool cover. Blackula, Christopher Lee, and uh, Barnabas from Dark Shadows are on the cover. The article is Inside Hammer Films by Russ Jones. Russ Jones apparently was a friend of Lee's and wrote this about a sequence they were shooting. The unit was shooting at Old Brompton Cemetery, where legend has it that a real vampire stalks the night. Early in the afternoon, a strange thing happened. The sun vanished. It was like an eclipse. Arthur Grant, the director of photography, could not get a light reading, and a hush came over both cast and crew. Chris Frilly was back in the dark catacombs of the cemetery and refused to move. Rod Barron, who was passing out tea to the crew, refused to go back to Lee, afraid that he would walk into Count Dracula, as Lee was wearing the full Dracula makeup. Old Brompton Cemetery looks bad enough in the daylight, but with no light, I can't say that I blame either one for not wanting to venture about. Within 40 minutes, though, the light was back and the day's shooting continued. I've never heard this story before, and I don't know if this has been sensationalized because it's, you know, it's from Marvel. But wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shooting a Dracula movie, and suddenly there's an eclipse at the cemetery. Um, Yeah. And what I know about Christopher Lee and his experiences, both in front of the camera and during wartime and everything, and if he's afraid to move, that's saying something. (laughs) Yeah. I love going through these old monster magazines, especially from like the 60s and 70s. And they're a little bit closer to the source, but they're still kind of sensationalized because it's not like things can be checked on the Internet at that point. So, again, I don't know how accurate or apocryphal the story might be, but that's pretty fascinating. And I I choose to believe it. Yes, I'm going to choose to believe it as well. (laughs) There you go. 
And besides, without that story, you're not going to find this on the IMDb. We found out who passed out tea to the crew that day. (laughs) Uh, Anything else we want to talk about the movie? Well, you said you watched the Blu-ray. Yes. And just to let everybody know, the Blu-ray is listed out on Amazon. It's easy to get. Right now, as of this recording, uh, you could buy it for $12.66. You can actually uh, also rent the film from Amazon uh, for $2.99 or buy it digitally for $9.99. Which is how I watched it for Halloween, actually, because I forgot I had it on Blu-ray, so I ended up streaming it from Amazon. Or the the package that I had it on, the four film favorites, Dracula's, is on DVD, and you can get that for the grand total of $6.99 on Amazon. The collection that I have it on, it's not a standalone. It's a four-disc set called Horror Classics Volume 1, four chilling movies from Hammer. It's Taste of Blood of Dracula, Dracula's Prison from the Grave, The Mummy, and Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Uh, it's four discs. It's less than 30 bucks, but it's pretty bare bones. Yeah, the, the DVD is just the four movies that I have, so there's there's nothing extra there either. And I believe at one point the soundtrack was available as well as a standalone. So if you're into soundtracks the way I am. <laughs> I'm not sure there is anybody into soundtracks the way you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The soundtrack is actually listed on Amazon. If you want the physical CD, it looks like it's out of print because it is right now $58.75. But the MP3 version of it is available for $9.49. There you go. It's uh, GDI Records released a a 29-track album. It's got the music from the film, but it's also got some of the uh, organ music that you hear in the movie, just kind of like incidental organ music, as well as some unused music from uh, alternate takes. There's also a label, and I kid you not, by the name of Red Bitch Music that also has released an album version of this in the UK. You can also pick up some of the compilation albums, just the Hammer Film Music collections, things like that. We'll have pieces of the music in their collection. So it's available out there, and I would highly recommend it because I really dig it. So thumbs up from both of us here at 1951 Down Place for Taste of Blood of Dracula. What did you think, Casey's Kidney Stone? I loved it. It's one of the best films I have ever seen. (laughs) I have a feeling that the Kidney Stones uh, film viewing history is is much smaller than yours or mine, Scott. I believe that is a a true statement. So we started a new tradition on the last episode of of Monster Kid Radio. (laughs) (laughs) We started a new tradition on the last episode of 1951 Down Place where I just sprung on Scott what the next movie was going to be. Mentioning Monster Kid Radio is not all that bad because Down Place is part of Monster Kid Radio. That's right. Part of the Monster Kid Radio Network. So you can find it at monsterkidradionetwork.com. It's just a placeholder site for now, but eventually sometime this year, I'm going to make it look better. I promise. But yeah, I just sprung on Scott what movie we were going to do, partly because I thought we had already talked about it. But clearly I didn't. I like the idea of being surprised. So Scott, surprise me. What are we doing next time? You're not going to believe this, but you've already mentioned this movie earlier this episode. Really? Yes, you have. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Everyone knows there are two sides to the infamous Dr. Jekyll. By day, the man. By night, the monster. Put a woman in your life, a good woman, and one day you'll wake up and you'll see a changed man. Now, Hammer believe you too are ready for a change. An absolutely complete change. (laughs) 
This is the testament of Dr. Henry Jekyll. Male. 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 It's Hyde, isn't it? How is your brother? He hasn't been himself of late. This is the new Dr. Jekyll. The most evil woman you'll ever see. This is the sensuous Sister Hyde, the most evil man you'll ever meet. Stay away from her. She means you great harm. But why? I just feel it, that's all. Dr. Jekyll, Sister Hyde, man or woman, or both. In this film, you will actually see the sinister Dr. Jekyll change in mind and body into the totally evil Sister Hyde. It is I who exist, Dr. Jekyll, not you. It is I who will be rid of you. Rid of you! Rid of you! Hammer invites you to share the agony of a man whose body is possessed by a strange passion to murder and beyond. They must be female, no more than 20 years old. There will be a different kind of victim tonight. And then the tug of war will be ended between us. Fascinating situation, don't you think? It'll be interesting to see who wins. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And I want to tell listeners, I had that picked out before we started recording. I had no idea he was going to mention it. I wanted to see more of Ralph Bates. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that'll be fun. Oh, that'll be real fun. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde next time on 1951 Down Place. I had to bite my lip when you said it earlier. <laughs> <laughs> this one I'm looking forward to. It's uh, Ralph Bates and Martine Beswick. Yes. Who um, is fantastic. And I've got to meet in person. That's right. Yep. She was at the, uh, the Monster Bash that you went to. That is correct. And I actually got to interview her. She is going to be one of the stars of the upcoming House of the Gorgon movie as well, directed by our friend Joshua Kennedy. With Carolyn Monroe. Veronica Carlson and the aforementioned Christopher Neem that I talked about earlier, uh, as well as Veronica Carlson's daughter, Georgina Dugdale. So that'll be cool. You know, it's it's not a Hammer film, obviously, but it's got its roots in the Gorgon. And I think it's okay to talk about here on the show just briefly. It's, it's I'm looking forward to that movie a lot. Anyway. That's it. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde next week. Do you have any comments? Not next week. um, Next time. (laughs) Next episode. (laughs) I'm out of coffee. I need more coffee or I've had too much. Listeners, what did you think of this movie of Taste the Blood of Dracula? I'd love to know. So call us, won't you? What's our phone number, Scott? Is it Uh, still active? That's a good question. Why don't we say, why don't you drop us a uh, email? (laughs) 
Okay. At uh, podcast at 1951downplace.com. Uh, you can also record an MP3 and send it in that way if you actually do want us to hear what your thoughts on this film or uh, any other Hammer-related uh, subjects you would like to, to talk with us or ask us about. Uh, you can also find our webpage over at 1951downplace.com. And uh, you can also find us in Facebook by searching for 1951downplace there. We've got a, a group where we have some Hammer discussion going on. Check that out and uh, join that discussion. I'd love to hear from people and hear what they think about this one. Because like I said, a lot of the critics are kind of back and forth on this. And I want to see where our, where our audience kind of falls. Yeah, all three of your hosts like it. <laughs> All right, Scott can be found when he's not talking about Hammer movies. Or monster movies over at uh, Monster Kid Radio. I show up there every once in a while. Which we need to talk about. So when we're done recording, I have <laughs> we need to talk. Uh, 1951 Down Places Scott Morris can be found at DisneyIndiana.com, where he and his wife, Tracy, talk about, well, what it's like being a Disney fan right in the middle of the country, almost equidistant from both parks uh, every other week on what I think is one of the coolest Disney podcasts out there. They are some of the best in the business. Check them out. And uh, 1951 Down Places uh, Derek can be found at one of the internet's best <laughs> monster podcast, in my opinion. Aww. And that's Monster Kid Radio. You never know what he's going to talk about. He's got some great guests and just an amazing show. And I'm glad that Downplace is part of the the network with um, that Monster Kid Radio is set up. So check out Monster Kid Radio at monsterkidradio.net. I do have some of the best guests. And then sometimes you come on, too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and my goal one day is that Casey's Kidney Stone is a guest on Monster Kid Radio. Oh, boy. Wouldn't it be <laughs> hilarious if we had Casey's Kidney Stone on Monster Kid Radio like twice, which would be one more than Casey himself? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and if, also, if I can just put in a quick little plug here, Monster Kid Radio, by the time this comes out, will have moved to YouTube as well which will be part of the Monster Kid Radio network. But if you could look up Monster Kid Radio on YouTube and consider subscribing to the channel, it would really help me out on uh, just because Monster Kid Radio needs as many views as possible over there in order to take part uh, of their YouTube partner program. Uh, need a thousand subscribers. Now, I will have a couple of different shows up there as well. Not going to be taken away from Monster Kid Radio or 1951 Down Place, but there will be Monster Kid Radio on YouTube as well as something I'm calling Monster Kid X. And a show called It's Pronounced Cook. So that'll be coming soon, uh, if not if it's not already there. So please look me up on YouTube. All right, Scott. It's great talking Hammer Films with you, man. Uh, thanks for uh, making some time to do this. I, I had a great time, and uh, it was a great pick by you. Excellent. I'm looking forward to next time. Dr. Jekyll, Sister Hyde, bring it on. Would you be willing to sell your souls to the devil? If one thought that one's experience might be extended. It would be extended to infinity and beyond. <laughs>